Today, thank you, uh, we are going to follow up with what we discussed last night. And for those of you who missed that, that's okay, because we're going to go in now a little more in depth into the solution for acedia, which is the sin of bored sloth, which is at least one way of, of describing it. It's much more destructive and horrible than that, as we explored last night. But we'll discuss in relationship to acedia today the theological virtues and how to live the Christian life. Let's begin, if we may, with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. O most loving Father, who willest us to give thanks for all things, to dread nothing but the loss of Thee, and to cast all our care on Thee, who carest for us. Preserve us from faithless fears and worldly anxieties, and grant that no clouds of this mortal life may hide from us the light of that love which is immortal, and which Thou hast manifested unto us in Thy Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. At the conclusion of our discussion last night, we talked about how the ultimate cure, solution for acedia, is the development of good habit, which translates finally into virtue. We talked about the cure of acedia as beginning with Jesus, continuing with Jesus, and ending with Jesus. This is all grace. And it is the grace of God which is imparted to us, which enables us to move beyond ourselves, beyond boredom and sloth, beyond spiritual narcissism and self-absorption, and to begin to live a life that is open to God and to other people. The principal way by which we do this, of course, would be by the infusion of the theological virtues. So today, that is what we're going to talk about. How do the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love relate to the disciple of Jesus Christ, to the one who is incorporated into Christ by virtue of baptism, nourished with the Eucharist, and vivified by the Holy Spirit to live a life in communion with the Holy Trinity. Here's a quote that describes in summation what it means to be a Christian and what it means to inherit eternal life. Quote, Eternal salvation is promised to mankind only through the merits of our Savior Jesus Christ and upon condition of obedience to the teaching of the gospel which requires faith, hope, and charity, and the due observance of the ordinances of the Orthodox and Catholic religion. Faith is a virtue infused by God, whereby man accepts and believes without doubting whatever God has revealed in the church concerning true religion. Hope is a virtue infused by God, and following upon faith, by it, man puts his entire trust and confidence in the goodness and mercy of God through Jesus Christ and looks for the fulfillment of the divine promises made to those who obey the gospel. Charity is a virtue infused by God and likewise consequent upon faith, whereby man loving God above all things for his own sake and his neighbor as himself for God's sake, yields up his will to a joyful obedience to the revealed will of God 
in the church. So that summarizes how we get to heaven. And indeed, it is by the infusion of the theological virtues that we acquire heaven, that we acquire communion with God. When we are baptized, God infuses into our soul the three theological virtues. These theological virtues, so-called because they are virtues or powers that come from God and therefore are theological, they are deriving from God himself, these three virtues are unique to the Christian. Only a baptized human being receives the theological virtues. All human beings have the capacity for the cardinal virtues, with which we are familiar if we are familiar with history, tradition, philosophy. We know what the cardinal virtues are. And those can be practiced by any human being, regardless of their religious belief or regardless of their origin or their spiritual state. But the theological virtues are given directly by God to us in baptism. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit when we are baptized. So these are gifts of God, virtues, powers, graces infused by God by virtue of our baptism. And it is in this way, therefore, that we conquer not only acedia, but we conquer all sin in the spiritual life. What can we say about faith? Faith is God's divinely given gift placed into our hearts by the Holy Ghost. We don't come up with faith on our own. There is the misconception that faith is simply thinking and believing and trusting in God based on our own power. But that is not faith. That might be a, a good move or a, a nice act of the will for us, but that is not faith. Faith is a gift. We are justified by the theological virtue of faith, which is the Holy Ghost within us. The Holy Ghost is implanted in our hearts and souls, our wills and minds, moving us to trust in God and to accept without doubting what God has revealed regarding himself. We are not justified by the Old Testament law. St. Paul says in Romans that if the Old Testament law can save, it would have, but it didn't. So faith is the fruit of the Holy Ghost. It is an infused and supernatural virtue transmitted to us by God's own working in his own act, which, of course, is baptism. In baptism, God acts in his own act and infuses us with this life. Now, we remember that there are these three theological virtues, and they alone last forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, faith, hope, love, these three abide, and the greatest of these is love or charity. With all three theological virtues, these are the three permanent gifts that God infuses into the soul, and they're the three gifts that will continue in us after we die, and we move on towards glorification in Christ at the last day. It was one of the contemporary Eastern Orthodox theologians, I want to say it was George Frolovsky, a Russian, who said that whatever remains in us after God's purifying fire of judgment after we die will only be that related to faith, hope, and love. Only that which is in our personality 
and in our soul that is rooted in faith, hope, and love will survive. So if someone does not have faith, hope, and love, there's not going to be much left after God's judgment and his refining power is placed upon us. So it's very important for us to cultivate faith, hope, and love, for these are the three things that abide forever. These are the three gifts that last forever. All other spiritual gifts, all other charismata, charisma, all those gifts will go away, as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13. But faith, hope, and love remain forever. And the first of these, of course, is faith. We are justified by faith because we are justified by grace. Faith itself is God's personal gift to us, given to us apart from our own act of the will, given to us apart from mental assent or our own deserving. But once we receive the gift of faith, we must use it in the action of our will, and we must assent in our minds and hearts to what God has revealed. The everlasting gift of faith is never alone. Sola fide? Eh, not really. In fact, when you read the New Testament, St. James says in St. James 2.24 that we are not saved by faith alone. So how this came about in the 16th century still remains something of a mystery because it is rejected outright in the New Testament. What we do find is this, the gift of faith is not alone in our spiritual life because faith is always given with hope and love. As St. Paul says, it is these three together. So faith works in conjunction with hope and love in order to produce salvation in us. The three theological virtues cannot be isolated from one another. We must cooperate with God's grace and enable his gift to work in us toward that for which these are given. These three abide, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Or as we recall, St. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, faith working by love justifies. So faith must be animated by love. And it is this faith animated, empowered by love that brings about justification that is makes us right before God. What, what was that? Uh, Galatians 5, 6. Okay. And then again, St. James 2, 23, we are not justified by faith alone. How about St. Paul, though, who says, if I have faith enough to move mountains, but have not charity, I am nothing. So charity is essential in the life of faith. And as we exercise these theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, we bring our will into harmony with God's will. We might, in fact, say that the process of our deification, divinization in Christ, the process of theosis, whereby we become by grace what God is by nature, that is a process in which our will is aligned with God's will. And all of our prayer and life and work, in fact, is the movement of ourselves to align ourselves with God's will. Now, last night when we were talking about 
how we overcome acedia, we talked about three characteristics of how we are to respond to God's free gift of grace in Christ. We are called to cooperate with God's grace in a way that is operative, active, and elective. Now, it is true that habit or habitus is not in itself a virtue. But if habit is repeated often enough, and if habit is developed with these three aspects, it will, in fact, become a virtue and partake of the theological virtues. What is critical for us is to realize that God never forces himself on us. We do possess a free will, a genuine free will, that in Christ has been restored and healed and redeemed. Christ assumed our human will so that he could offer to his Father in love and adoration, in sacrifice and obedience, the offering of our redemption in a human will. And having our, our human will offered to the Father in Christ, now our wills are healed. You might say that they are returned to us in baptism, restored and renovated. In baptism, we receive a human nature transplant. The old man, the old Adam, is crucified. And we receive in baptism the new man, the new Adam, the new creation, who is Christ. And our human nature is now united to his because we are baptized. But if we want to grow beyond the temptation of acedia, which is this spiritual self-absorption, this spiritual torpor in which one does not care and does not care that one does not care, (laughs) it gets that bad. If we want to move beyond that, then it has to be the opposite, doesn't it, in the Christian life. There has to be not only caring, there has to be acting and a willful acting towards God. Our will, our act must be operative. That is, it is actually doing what we need to do. Uh, It's the opposite of sloth. It is operative. We are taking the initiative by God's grace to move towards God. So a habit needs to be operative. It needs to be active. That is, it is continually in motion. It is, it is propelling us forward towards God. And we see it that way and we live in that way. And it must be elective. That is, we freely choose it. It is not something that we are compelled to do. It was Evagrius Pontius who said, God is the only one in the universe who can work and in and through our will without doing violence to our freedom. God is the only being in the universe who can work in and through our own will without doing violence to the freedom that we actually possess. Now, isn't that interesting when we think about acedia as being conceived of as freedom? But what we would discover last night is that acedia, as this idea of freedom, is in fact a form of spiritual slavery because Asidia's self-conception is of a freedom without limits, without responsibility, without accountability, without love, without consideration for God, 
without consideration for the needs of other people. And those who fall into acedia fall into the trap of a delusional selfishness, wherein one believes one is truly free, but in the lack of order, the lack of place, the lack of the yoke of taking up what is necessary, the lack of stability, in that the person is actually depressed and miserable and will never be free. Genuine freedom comes through allowing God to act in and through us. He never violates our own will, but he gives us the necessary grace and power to act towards him and to allow us to do that with genuine freedom. The image and likeness of God is truly man fully alive. This is how God is glorified. Another quote from St. Irenaeus, the glory of God is man fully alive. And to be fully alive means that we have an authentic freedom. The image and likeness of God in us is real freedom. But it is, as we prayed in Matins this morning, service of God. Our service of God is perfect freedom. God alone gives us the genuine meaning of what it actually means to be free. So when we choose the good, when we correspond and cooperate by God's grace with God's grace, we appropriate the work of Jesus Christ in our spiritual life. But our choices have to be operative, active, and elective, so that we are really cooperating with God by His grace. Christ, in His free and unmerited love, forgives us, heals, and transforms our nature. And not only this, but Christ reproduces His life in us. When we hand our will over to Christ, He will reproduce His life of filial love and obedience to the Father. He reproduces that in us so that we become participant in Christ. Being incorporated into Him, we participate in Him. We become one in Christ, one with Christ. And this is why St. Cyril of Jerusalem would write, that the baptized Christian is, in fact, a little Christ. We become a Christ in miniature when we hand our will over and we allow ourselves then to be united to Christ by His grace. All of this, needless to say, but we'll say it, is ontological, sacramental, incarnational. This is the true Christian religion. It's ontological. God works in our very being. God, who is the author and the source of our being, imposes and infuses and imparts to us his life so that we may be in our being united to him. And the way by which this is transmitted to us is sacramentally. The sacraments are the extension of the incarnation. So the theological virtues are given to us in an ontological way, in our very soul, in our very being, and it is conferred, they are conferred upon us in this sacramental way. By doing this, we become an extension of the incarnation ourselves. 
God became man so that man may become God, as St. Athanasius the Great said. God became man so that we can be partakers of the divine life and become heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, partakers of the divine nature. So this is the theological basis upon which we can then grow into the image and likeness of Christ and use the theological virtues to overcome acedia, or for that matter, anything else. The theological virtues are given to us so that we may partake of Christ's divine sonship. The Christian life is adoption and grace. We are adopted as God's children by grace and the Holy Spirit, and we receive divine sonship. The theological virtues so order us to Christ, so conform us to Christ, that we can say with him, Our Father, who art in heaven. We do wax bold when we pray our Father, but we can do so because Christ comes to infuse his own sonship into us, making us filii in filio, sons in the Son. And we become genuine partakers of the sonship of Christ. So our Lord's visible presence on earth at the ascension passed into the sacraments. And as we receive the theological virtues, it is by the sacraments that those virtues are strengthened in the spiritual life. Through the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, We can trust in God, have confidence in God, and be united in charity to God. The infused virtues and graces of baptism make it possible for men fully and completely so to believe that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Faith, as we have said, is the gift of God. It is a grace given by God to men. No one can create or engender saving faith in oneself. It is by grace alone. Baptism is traditionally called the sacrament of faith, which supernaturally gives us this gift of saving faith and unites us to the faith of the church for salvation. Now, faith is not merely a personal or subjective experience nor is it merely an individual act of trust or assurance in God, although certainly it is those things, but moreover, it is the power of God given by God to the whole church, to the totus Christus, the total Christ, Christ to his head and body together in one mystical communion. We receive Christ who is a corporate personality. He is head and body together. And faith is given to us through the faith of the church, whereby we are all joined together in the mystery of Christ as one body. Baptism inserts us into the faith of Christ, and which is therefore possessed by the church, and it manifests the unity of the family of God. In our personal lives, therefore, we should never underestimate the power of our own baptism 
and of the theological virtues infused in the soul, because when we actually exercise these virtues, we have the whole church on our side. We're not acting alone. We're acting in concert with the whole mystical body, and the faith of the church lives and is operative in us. This is why we can baptize a baby. The sacraments require faith for them to be effective. Well, where does faith come from in the baptism of an infant? The faith of the church. The church believes on behalf of the child. The church believes for the child. The child is incorporated then into that faith, and by that saving faith is given the grace of regeneration in the sacrament of baptism. And so it is with the theological virtues. We do not pray alone. We are not saved alone. We do not become saints alone, but only insofar as we are members of the mystical body. Now at this point, we will pause and take a half hour break. Thank you. <laughs>